What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. As we speak right now at this moment, American-made warplanes are dropping American-made munitions on Kurdish civilians in northern Syria. And a bloodbath has apparently begun as a result of Donald Trump. According to the news reports, the way this all started was Mr. Erdogan, the president of Turkey, now you could say dictator, now that he's uh, taken on all these powers to himself, was so angry with Trump that he didn't have a one-on-one -on -one meeting at the UN that he called up and started berating Trump. Trump apologized and groveled and offered him a visit to the White House. And, and Erdogan said, that's not enough. I want to be able to get those terrorists out of northern Syria and southern Turkey. And of course, by terrorists, he's referring to the Kurds. And so Trump greenlit this uh, invasion, which is happening right now. And the official word is the U.S. forces have been told to stand down, allow the slaughter to proceed. On the line with us is Dr. Edmund Garib. He's the adjunct professor of Middle Eastern history and politics at the School of International Service at American University. He was the first Mustafa Baranzi scholar of global Kurdish studies at the Center for Global Peace at American University and a professor at George Washington University's Elliott School of International Affairs. His books include The Historical Dictionary of Iraq, The Kurdish Question in Iraq, and the Kurdish nationalist movement and the war in the Gulf, which he uh, co-authored with Majid Kadouri. Dr. Garib, welcome back to the program. It's been quite some time since we've talked. I'm, I'm so glad you were able to, to join us this morning. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you again. You've written several books on the history of the Kurds. Is that an, a reasonably accurate description of what's going on? I'm, I'm assuming that, in fact, Erdogan was using being snubbed at the UN as an excuse to demand this because it appears he had his military all ready to go, and that it's American munitions, American planes that are right now dropping bombs on Kurdish civilians. Do I have all that right, sir? Uh, yes, uh, I think to a large extent that uh, that's true. We still don't know exactly what happened in that conversation between Erdogan and Trump in New York, but the Turks at that time, however, had a different version than the version that we heard from uh, the American side. From the American side, we heard that the president and the whole administration were on the same page, that the U.S. had agreed to the establishment of a secure, secure zone or a secure area along the border between uh, Turkey and Syria, while the Turks were saying, and on the other hand, that there was division within the U.S. administration. There was a president and some other officials who supported them, who agreed to the, uh, the, the, this uh, safe zone, but there were others opposed, and that ever they said, there were still disagreements about the depth 
of that and the area of that secure zone. And right. uh, what we understood at that time, that, that safe zone was supposed to be uh, about somewhere between five and seven kilometers deep and about 120 to 150 kilometers wide. Uh, while the Turks wanted 131 kilometers deep and about to 300 kilometers wide. Basically, that's what we understood until Sunday when the news came out after the conversation between the two presidents that the U.S. was going to withdraw. It was not going to support uh, neither the Turks nor the, nor the Kurds to withdraw from that area. Now, how far has the U.S. withdrawn? It's not yet clear. Has the U.S. withdrawn from the whole area? Uh, that's not obvious as of now, but yeah. we're getting uh, reports from NBC News that um, even the U.S. troops in the region, and there's only a you know a, a between a thousand and twenty-five hundred of them apparently, have been told to stand down specifically. We've got uh, live reporting from there coming through NBC. Yeah. Um, you've been studying this stuff for years and years. You know these groups. You know these people. The obvious stuff to me, anyway, is just as a, as a, as an observer, is that. Trump's betrayal of the Kurds is going to cause, uh, you know, this ethnic group that at one time was its own nation to no longer trust the United States. And that the larger issue is that probably any of our allies, or many of our allies anyway, will now be concerned that they can't trust the United States, particularly if their enemy is a country where there is a Trump Tower. And my imagination was that Erdogan called up Trump and said, you're making five million bucks a year off this Trump Tower and licensing fees in uh, Istanbul. I'm going to pull a plug on it. I don't know if that's the case or not, but, you know, I, I, you know, knowing how Trump thinks. But people won't trust America anymore. A, do you agree with that assessment? Not, yes, not about I, the Trump Tower. I would agree and B, with, uh, how much farther does it go beyond that? I think for what you, the points that uh, you have made, particularly this issue of trust, is extremely important. I think U.S. credibility is on the line. Basically, the Kurds, yes, the U.S., when you talk to U.S. officials, they say, we did not make any commitment to the Kurds uh, that we would defend them against uh, Turkey. But at the same time, we know that that's what the Kurds expected. We know that also the U.S. government provided weapons and material, as well as there is a budget, there was a budget to support Syrian democratic forces, which are led by the Kurds, but they include some Christian forces, they include some Arab forces, Muslim forces. So we know that part of it is true, and that's actually what the Pentagon announced as late as yesterday. Uh, nevertheless, I think the Kurds expected that. They fought alongside the U.S. They helped the U.S. against ISIS. And so now they were left trying, you know, dry in a way. Some of them were really disappointed. I was speaking with some Kurdish uh, representatives of uh, the Syrian Democratic Forces yesterday. Mm -hmm. And they were uh, very much disappointed. They were shocked. Uh, that on one hand. On the other hand, it should not have come really as a total surprise. Uh, as a candidate, said that he was going to withdraw from what he called this endless war. Uh, at the same time, he said that after he reached the White House. Last December, he announced he was going to withdraw from Syria. And what the reaction we saw is that uh, the Secretary of Defense, General Mattis, uh, uh, resigned at that time. Uh, and later on, more recently, we have seen uh, the pushing aside of Bolton. Uh, who has been a hawk on a variety of issues, 
whether it's Ukraine, whether it's Korea, whether it's Syria. Also, about a week ago, uh, there was an article uh, which was published in more than one uh, newspaper, uh, which quoted a senior U.S. official who said that there is a, a storm brewing in that part of the world. This is a full storm, and we may be forced to withdraw. So basically, this should not have come totally as a surprise to the Kurds. Uh, the Kurds have as pawns, unfortunately, on more than one occasion by various superpowers, including the United States, relied on the Kurds, and then they would drop them uh, like a hot potato almost. And we, we know, for example, the first Kurdish Republic that was established in the in 1946-47, uh, that republic was supported by the Soviet Union at the time. Uh, however, it was very much opposed by the Shah of Iran, uh, and uh, the U.S. and Britain uh, supported uh, the Iranian government at that time to suppress that republic. Uh, that republic collapsed. Its leader was executed along with a large number of his uh, advisors and followers. With probably the best-known example is what happened in the 70s when the U.S. launched a covert operation to help the Kurds of Iraq. The purpose was really to undermine the Iraqi government, although the Kurds were not told that. And when the Shah, and they basically it was also done to support the Shah at that time, who had been facing a serious conflict with, uh, with Baghdad. So in 1975, the Shah and Saddam Hussein reached an agreement to solve their border disputes, to solve some of their political disputes, and the Kurds were uh, dropped again. And when you know, Secretary Kissinger, he was uh, at that time working for the Ford administration, uh, was asked about this, how could you drop uh, the Kurds, how could they drop Kurdish allies, uh, said that covert action should not be confused uh, with missionary work. Basically, uh, also one time he said, we are not in the charity business. Uh, so basically, this happened again and happened again and again in the 80s and the 90s. Then the 2003, the Kurds had hoped that they might gain independence in Iraq, uh, and uh, uh, they were counting on the U.S., and that didn't happen. And then we saw also in Afrin, when Turkey invaded uh, about a uh, year or so ago, the region of Syria known as Afrin, mostly inhabited at that time by Kurds, uh, and the U.S. did uh, nothing. So basically, uh, the Kurdish leadership in Syria should have at least taken that into this long history into account. I'm guessing that they did. They had to be aware of this. But, you know, they, they have no other... I mean, they, they don't have their own nation any longer. They've got no place to turn. So they're, they're, aren't they just kind of grasping at straws? Yes, very much. That's the problem. They were could have done that in a, from a stronger position when they were in a position of strength. Uh, that would have maybe, maybe uh, would have been a better uh, opportunity. Bloomberg reports there's an increasing number of people concerned about their wealth due to the fear we may be entering a larger economic crisis than 2008. If you've been paying attention, you know the Dow recently had its sixth largest point loss in history, and the stock market continues to show extreme volatility. Meanwhile, central bank gold purchases have risen to a six-decade high, sending gold prices higher. CNBC and the World Gold Council reports Russia and China are swapping out U.S. dollars from their own portfolios, investing in safer, more liquid assets like gold. And what makes things even more suspicious, 
The U.S. Federal Reserve reportedly holds the most gold of all central banks. What's everyone getting ready for? If you share the gut feeling that something is soon to go south with the global economy, call my friends at ITM Trading at one own gold Proper gold and silver strategy will help secure your entire wealth portfolio. Call ITM Trading at one own gold Ask them for their free gold protection guide and secure your wealth while you still can. That's one 888 O W N G O L. Welcome back. We're talking with Dr. Edmund Garib, adjunct professor of Middle East history and politics at the School of International Service at American University and the author of numerous books on this region and specifically on the Kurds. We were just talking about how frequently and cynically, basically, uh, you know, in, at the, in the case of Henry Kissinger, the United States has repeatedly betrayed the Kurds, as have other uh, regional powers, as did the Soviet Union, as did the Brits, and yet they have no place to turn. They don't have their own country. They're scattered kind of, a, you know, among Syria, Turkey, uh, Iran, and Iraq. How do you think that this invasion by Turkey, this slaughter of the Kurds that is beginning right now as we speak, how is that going to realign the region? What are the near term and what are the worst possible outcomes of this event? Now, the worst possible outcome uh, would be to continue to destabilize uh, this area, to continue to destabilize Syria, to continue with the fighting among the different uh, factions uh, among the various uh, ethnic groups and all, but also between um, radical Islamic groups and other groups uh, inside Syria. This is like it could easily spread to other areas. It has, in fact, spread to other areas. In other words, this and could re-energize uh, and re-metastasize ISIS? This is a great question that you asked. I'm glad you asked it. Primarily, there's something of mindset in the U.S., or particularly in Washington, uh, who think only of the immediate issues. But it was, in fact, the interventions in Iraq, uh, the disastrous interventions in Iraq, in Libya, in Syria, in Afghanistan, which were extremely costly in terms of lives and in terms of material, not only for the people of that region who were really devastated. Cities were destroyed. Infrastructure was destroyed totally. Uh, and it led to instability at the same time the U.S., that cost the U.S. somewhere between 8 and $10 trillion, which could have better spent inside the United States. And yet nobody seems to have learned a lesson from this, that interve- these interventions uh, have also devastating results and consequences. So basically, I think if there is a chance now maybe to try to get the Syrian uh, people, the opposition, as well as the government together, sit down and push to try to reach an arrangement, that and to stop the interventions from outside, whether it's Turkey, whether it's Iran, whether it's uh, uh, the European powers, or whoever, or the U.S., uh, or anyone else. I think what the foreign powers could do is to try, maybe if they really want to help the Syrian people reach agreement, and political agreement, and then to help the country rebuild. Is it possible that this could be the spark, like the uh, assassination of Archduke Ferdinand in, in the early 20th century, that leads to a larger regional war and perhaps even a world war? It could. It could. That, I mean, still, I would say, hopefully, highly unlikely that there would still be some wise leaders who would avoid that. But the danger is there. Yeah, remarkable. Dr. Edmund Garib, his books include The Historical Dictionary of Iraq, The Kurdish Question in Iraq, The Kurdish Nationalist Movement, and The War in the Gulf, among others. 
professor of Middle East history at the School of International Service at American University. Dr. Greed, thank you so much for dropping by today. Thank you very much, Bob. It's always great Good talking with you. With you. I, I look forward to future conversations. Thank you again, sir. Thank you. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. So how do you think this is going to play out? The Kurds have lived in this region, northern Syria, southern Turkey, northwestern Iraq, southwestern Iran, if I'm remembering my picture of the Middle East correctly. They've lived in this region for quite some time. They have, back when it was the Ottoman Empire, they were semi-autonomous. That all got carved up after World War I, and the Kurds got screwed. And they have fought on our side. And, 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 the, and it wasn't, you know, I mean, in the news, they're talking about the Kurds fighting side by side with Americans. No, we've been providing air support. We've been providing weapons. We've been providing logistics. But our soldiers have not been fighting. Our soldiers did not fight ISIS. The Kurds lost between 10 and 15,000 people killed in action against ISIS. They, they captured more than 90,000 ISIS fighters who are now in five detention camps that they control. They did all this on our behalf, for us. Now, yeah, in part, they were defending their own towns, their own areas, and that's what's so tragic about this. Erdogan doesn't like the Kurdish independence movement in the south of Turkey. The Kurds want to have their own country, or at least their own state, over which they have some autonomy. And Erdogan is like, no, sorry, ain't going to happen, and uh, has labeled them terrorists. And now he's trying to take out the Kurds in northern Syria. This is, this is a genocidal slaughter. It's nothing less than that. Uh, being aided and abetted by Donald Trump, in my opinion, because he's making money on a Trump hotel in Istanbul. I think that's the lens through which Trump is seeing all this stuff. Just like he wants to have a Trump hotel in, in uh, Moscow, he's seeing that through that lens. You know, you'll recall when he, the first time he visited Kim Jong-un in North Korea, he talked about how, you know, uh, Pyongyang and for that matter, the seacoast, he said, there's this huge undeveloped seacoast in North Korea that could be turned into huge resorts with Trump's name on them. It's all about Donald Trump making money. And so he, he betrays our allies. They're being slaughtered as we speak. American soldiers have been told to stand down. American-made jets are dropping American-made bombs on Kurdish civilians, on children, on men and women who never took up arms. It's, it's beyond obscene. And I am very concerned that this could be the fuse that lights a larger regional war. I, I'm, I was glad to he hear Dr. Garib say that he thought that that was a remote possibility, that this could be a World War I scenario. But I was concerned to hear him say it's not an impossibility. Particularly if Iran gets into this, if Russia gets into this, if NATO gets into this, Turkey is a NATO power, uh, where the hell is NATO in this? I mean, you know, if we had an actual leader in Washington, D.C., somebody who paid attention to his briefing papers, somebody who made an effort to understand international geopolitics, rather than sitting on his, uh, on his phone tweeting constantly, rage tweeting about, you know, impeachment and Democrats and Nancy Pelosi and all this kind of crap, we could have averted a slaughter and we could have kept ISIS bottled up, essentially. And as I've said many times, you know, I'm not a fan of the United States military involvement anywhere. But this was not U.S. forces fighting 
at the peak, we had 2,600 soldiers in, in Syria. They've been drawn down to a little over 1,000 right now. And basically what they're providing is logistical support. And I, I realize, you know, back in 1961, 62, John Kennedy said, oh, let's move 15,000 advisors into Vietnam. And we all know how that turned out. But we're already there. I mean, you know, Bush and Cheney lied us into these wars, as Dr. Garib pointed out, that have cost millions of lives, trillions of dollars, eight to ten trillion dollars to the United States. We could have rebuilt our, you know, we, we could have rebuilt every school in America half the hospitals in America, much of the roadway in America, and we could have created a national rail system with $8 trillion. But instead, George Bush and, and Dick Cheney decided to lie us into a couple of wars where we just pissed this money away. And, and in the process, created, yeah, radically amplified and strengthened Al-Qaeda, and then created ISIS out of that. We did. This was the result of Republicans lying us into these wars. Amazing. Amir in West Hills, California, listening to KPFK. Hey, Amir, what's up? Visiting the history of betrayals, primarily coming from basically the West. Of course, the first one in 1945 could be retraced to, as Dr. Garib said, to the former Soviet Union. But uh, an American basically who visited that republic found that it was really more an American-style democracy and that the United States should really have defended that Republic 1945. Right, this is the Kurds. The Kurds were trying to emulate the United States and having a democratic exactly. republic. You're absolutely right, Amir. And this is exactly, you know, after the, from 1945 to present time, what I want to stress, the Kurdish movement has gone through transformation. It is not really the kind of narrow nationalism to be obsessed with its own uh, realization of basically some of the basic linguistic cultural rights that to this day it is deprived of. It, it has become a transnational basically movement. It is aligned with progressive movements for a secular democracy. And this is what is to be highlighted. And uh, unfortunately, when it comes to Rojava, Western Syria, this aspect of the Kurdish movement has not received the well-deserved attention so that global forces are mobilized to defend. Uh, there have been quite a few Western volunteers who have even given their lives to safeguard this democracy. But unfortunately, the West has not been responsive in the same way that the Kurds have been responsive to a global need for a global mobilization against the retrograde and the dark ideology of the Islamic State. Uh, and they entered the global, really, front. And they succeeded. They spearheaded the whole movement, the global movement. But unfortunately, what I wanted to highlight is this, you know, global world community has not come to help them uh, during this time of basically desperation. And it is this transnational aspect of the Kurdish movement during the contemporary times that I wanted to highlight. And perhaps that was something which Dr. Larib brought up in the global dimensions of the crisis if basically nothing is done to stop it or to intervene more effectively politically. I'm, I'm uh, wondering why I'm not hearing boo out of the European countries. Do you have any insight ironic. into that? They look, 
unfortunately, they look to the United States. Yeah. Uh, still, you know, the big brother is not too far away. It's around the corner. Uh, and that must be, you know, the primary uh, reason. And they compromise. Human rights yeah. for Europeans uh, doesn't have um, much value. Donald Trump said that we pay the Kurds to fight. The Kurdish people, the nobles, the brave, basically, warriors and fighters were mercenaries of the United States. Right. The United Which States is not the case. Amir, I'm sorry, we're out of time, but I've got, I've got to run. You know, until last year, I'd never endorsed a weight loss product, but I decided to change that after reading about university research into a molecule in olive oil that regulates appetite. Louise convinced me there was one product worth sharing, and a year later, I had to say she was right. The key to losing weight is getting your appetite and those pesky food cravings under control, and then losing weight is easy. My producer, Sean, was so impressed with Louise's results that she's trying Riduzone 2. I mean, who doesn't want to lose a few pounds before the holidays? Sean says Riduzone is making it easier for her to stick to her weight loss plan. Just one capsule with breakfast and forget it. A second one at dinner for days when you need a little extra help. Sean says when you don't feel hungry, it's easier to make better choices. The only ingredient in Riduzone occurs naturally in the body and is completely non-stimulant. And that appealed to both Louise and Sean. Listen, if you're looking to lose weight this season, I strongly suggest you give non-prescription Riduzone a try. Use the promo code TOM, T-H-O-M, and receive up to 65% off plus free shipping. Go to Riduzone.com. That's R-I-D-U-Z-O-N-E.com. R-I-D-U-Zone.com. Riduzone.com. Promo code TOM, T-H-O-M. Riduzone.com. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. I was just talking with one of our listeners from Los Angeles, Amir, who was uh, saying that one of the things that is not being emphasized enough, and therefore I'm repeating essentially what he said because I agree and I think it needs to be emphasized aggressively, is that in those regions that have been controlled by the Kurds, going back to the 1930s, they have tried to run their own controlled regions where they have local governance as secular, that is not religious, democratic republics. When the, when the Kurdish Republic was declared in 1945, which was shot down ultimately, or betrayed, by Stalin and by, uh, I don't know who was in charge of uh, Great Britain at the time, if Churchill still was, and the United States, they based it on American democracy. It was a secular republic. The Kurds are one of the few political groups in the Middle East who are not trying to impose Sharia law. In fact, this is the foundation of their opposition to ISIS, why they joined us in fighting ISIS, and why we were allied with them, and why they keep coming back to us to be allies. And this is who Donald Trump just turned his back on. This is who Donald Trump just poured a, a bucket of excrement over the top of. I mean, this is, this is who Donald Trump signaled Erdogan, uh, the dictator of Turkey, the guy who the last time he came to the United States stood and watched as his goons beat up Kurds on the streets in Washington, D.C., for goodness sake. And that was during the Obama administration. And Trump says, oh, yeah, come on back to the White House. We'll have a good old time. It's amazing. The reason why Trump sold out the Kurds was because he was weak. That he just, like... He gave in to Erdogan. That sounds like a slogan, right? It sounds like some, some kind of political complaint. It doesn't sound like something that's real. Or if it is, it's like, well, how is that, right? 
And so it kind of got brushed off and people ignored it. And it really didn't become even much of a media story. But NBC News is now reporting. In fact, uh, Willie Geist laid this out on Joe Scarborough's program that when Trump went to New York to the United Nations meeting, he did not have a one-on-one -on -one sit down with Erdogan, the president of uh, now dictator, he's declared military rule of Turkey. And Erdogan took this as an insult and has been fuming and it was furious. So he called up Trump. This was, you know, a couple days ago, the Sunday night rather. I called up Trump and just let go with both cannons. You know, you're disrespecting me and Turkey's an important ally and we buy things from you and we buy jets from you and maybe we should buy them from Europe and maybe we should buy them from Russia and what the hell do you think you're doing? And Trump was like, oh, I'm so sorry, Mr. Erdogan. I'm so sorry. Uh, you know, would you like to come to the White House? You can sleep in the Lincoln bedroom. We'll do a state dinner for you. We'll, we'll roll out the red carpet. And Erdogan was like, that's not enough. That's not enough. You owe me big, you know. And, and, of course, I'm, I'm not constructing this uh, faux conversation here from any kind of narrative uh, or transcript that the White House has provided, simply from the reporting that, that we're getting around this. This still did not appease him. And so, finally, Erdogan says, uh, you know, you want me to stop being angry with you? Let me go into northern Syria and clean out those terrorists, meaning the Kurds. At which point Trump said, okay, cool, no problem, I'll do that. And suddenly Erdogan was, well, Donald, it's so nice, and thank you so much. And by the way, thank you for inviting me to the White House. I'd be glad to come. And the White House announced that Erdogan is coming next month for a state dinner. So Trump really and truly did wimp out. Mike in Minneapolis. Hey, Mike, thanks for listening to AM 950, KTNF. What's up? You know, earlier on one of your calls, you said that uh, you had thought that the Kurds had been fighting for approximately a thousand years. Actually, the key year was 1839. You see, Kurdistan, and there was a Kurdistan. I've had people tell me there never was a Kurdistan. No, there was. And it was up in Russia, about uh, 900 to a thousand miles to the north of where the Kurdish people are now. Hmm. And they lost in 1839 a civil war that took 13 years against uh, Tsarist Russia. And uh, they were given over to the caliphate in that area at that time to be agricultural workers. Because they were Muslim? Then, they, were, uh, they, were, they were allowed into, the, into that part of the Middle East? Yes, they were, but they were also different from the Muslims that were there and right. uh, the way the Middle East was carved up at the end of World War One, From that point, the discrimination in that area against the Kurdish people kind of went into hyper-overdrive and they've right. been the doormat of the universe down there ever since and fighting for their very lives and trying not to integrate too much with the other folks down there because they wanted to maintain their identity. But uh, yeah, it's, uh, you know, and then everybody comes along, they use the Kurdish people, and they lie to them, and then uh, leave them hanging. And uh, it looks right. like that's what Donald Trump is up to now. Yeah, the Brits did it before and after World War One, and we did it, and we're doing it right now, and yeah, spot on. Mike, thanks for the insight. I really appreciate that. I, it's, uh, you know, I, I learn something every day on this program. Linda in Matlock, Washington. Hey, Linda, what's on your mind today? Hello. Yes, what you were saying about um, the, um, the the Trump dictatorship and his antisocial personality disorder. Mm -hmm. This is just ripe. This yes, 
straight out of the DSM-5TR. He's basically turned some of these people that have been our allies in the sacrifice zones, particularly since the uh, Kurds are going to be slaughtered, as you said, a future genocide. We're also seeing the test case for China and Xi Jinping's regime, because when the British handed over Hong Kong back to the Chinese after the lease was up, they were supposed to have 50 years of democracy. Well, we've only had about 30. And now that they are starting to go so aggressively against Hong Kong, Hong Kong is really the test case because the next big prize is going to be Taiwan. And they've estimated oh, that yeah. Taiwan could only hold off the Chinese for about eight hours. Yep. If that. So, I if mean, any, if that. I, you yeah, know, one good-sized bomb. If that. And I didn't know about the 50-year thing. Is that written into yep. that lease I, that when the opium I, wars ended? That I think the British gave them a lease for 99 years. Right. And then when the transition that. came... I think they were supposed to guarantee some kind of democratic autonomy to that area for a certain period of time. Uh, your researcher would have to go into that a little deeper. Yeah, but my I researcher really is me, that but just, <laughs> I'll do that. Yeah, <laughs> your staff. But well, sure, you know, also, yeah, Sean exactly. and Nate look stuff up here, too. But Yeah, yeah. 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 So that's, we'll, what the, that's what they're doing. I think they're doing a test case now, because if they can pull this off, and they can silence all of the basic, you know, the capitalists that really want to keep this market going and just keep this economy going. They are going to sacrifice democracy, and the next casualty is going to be Taiwan. And, hey, Moscow Mitch's wife might have to move her family here, you know, immigration yeah. laws. Yeah, or they may be very happy yeah. with it. I, I, you know, I just I don't know about, about her family. Uh, but, and yeah. also Macau. I mean, you know, they've got Macau on their yeah. sides, too. Yeah. Amazing so it's stuff. Like it's the perfect storm. You've got a sociopath in the White House, and you've yeah. got all of these old, ancient grievances that people have been just itching to settle. And right. he's the right guy to give it to him. Yeah, and that's what's happening in the Middle East. It's what's happening in Europe. Yeah. It's what's happening in, in Asia. Um, and if you think about if you think about how World War II ended, as far as Yalta and the agreements, and how the Middle East and how many areas of the world were carved up. Mm -hmm. We're still paying for that price and will continue to pay. Well, I think really that's the end of World War One. I. I mean, you know, that's when the mm, Kurds yeah, lost their territory. That's when the Middle East got yeah. redrawn, uh, you know, with little consideration mm -hmm. of actual tribal communities. And frankly, I think that how World War One started, you know, with the, the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand in Sarajevo, and then, mm -hmm. you know, basically one country decides they're upset about this, and so they take on another country, and that country has a mutual defense treaty with a third country, and that third country, and I, I forget the sequence that happened with World War One, but basically it was like a whole series of dominoes falling on both sides, mm -hmm. and the piles of dominoes were just getting bigger and bigger and bigger until, boom, it was a world war, and we got dragged into it. Or Woodrow Wilson enthusiastically inserted us into it. He hired Edward Bernays to convince the Americans that we should do it. But I think World War I yeah. is the best analogy for where we're at right now. Linda, thank you for the call. Good to hear from you and spot on. John in New York City, listening to WBAI. Hey, John, what's up? I'm old enough to tell you that I demonstrated against the Vietnam War. Me I'm anti-war. So when I hear, and I used to be what's called a liberal, but when I am actually, you'd call me an alt-right, but I'm anti-war. So when Trump says he's pulling out of Syria, yes, the Kurds are great. But all these people that object, that complain about this, I don't see them going to war. I've called up 
representatives who but here's who here's the point john we are not fighting a war in syria our guys in syria are not engaged in combat never have been they're there to support the kurds the kurds have lost between 10 and 15,000 people taking down isis in syria they've seized a massive territory it's probably the size of texas you know or maybe half that northeastern syria which is also an area that may well have a lot of oil and where the Kurds have historically lived. We've just been there providing basically support to them. We back out and Turkey comes in and eats their lunch. First of all, Trump actually said that if they do something like that, he will go after Turkey. He said that after he realized um, that when he caved into Erdogan, he had screwed the Kurds. He had so little understanding of that situation that when Erdogan called him up all pissed off because he didn't get his private meeting at the UN, and Trump tried to placate him by offering him a visit to the White House, and that wasn't enough. And Erdogan then said, well, I want you to give me free reign you know, to go into Syria and clear out those terrorists. And Trump didn't even know what he was talking about. He just said, okay, cool, we'll back out of the way and we'll let you do it. You know, you're our ally, sure, you're part of NATO, go in there, take them. And, and then the next day, you know, his own military advisors are, are like, oh my God, you're putting guys who fought on our behalf against ISIS and our behalf being Western values, if nothing else. You're putting these guys at the, you know, in, the, in the crosshairs of the new dictator of Turkey. Well, I, I agree with you that Erdogan is a dictator. Uh, Shouldn't we stop genocide when we can, John? If the Turks go into northern well, Syria, why, why did, the Kurds live there. It's Syria. not just their fighters. But they why? live there. Their, their families are there. I mean, they could kill hundreds of, and probably will slaughter hundreds of thousands of Kurds. I agree with you. But, you know, your previous caller mentioned the agenda of the New American Century. Right. And which you acknowledge to be true, that we under under false pretexts we go in and we invade really for oil, all these Middle Eastern countries right. and Syria was one of them, and I believe that you were against that. Oh, I so was, I am, and I agree. Syria was on the list on PNAC's yeah. list, but that's not so what we're doing there. What we've been doing there is supporting the Kurds against ISIS. It's been a very limited thing. There's only a couple thousand U.S. troops there. And so, you know, we've got to, John, i got to run here. Thanks a lot for the call. But as I said yesterday, I think what we should be doing is we should be getting together with Europe and the rest of NATO, not just Turkey, and saying, let's work something out so that we can have peace in this region. Russ in Portland, Oregon. Hey, Russ, what's on your mind today? Yeah, Tom, it's a very sad day for me and I think for this country. As you very well know, as you just made mention of, uh, as you and I speak right now, the brave Peshmerga Kurdish fighters who did 95% of the fighting against ISIS, according to Barry McCaffrey, four-star general, are being slaughtered by the Turks coming in from the north and not as well known, but the Russians are moving up from the south. They're going to put these people into a literal vice and wipe them out. Now, Trump made this possible by withdrawing our people from, from that part of Syria, and he did not consult with our military, did not consult with our diplomats. He consulted with the Turkish dictator, Erdogan, 
who probably said something like, you know, Donald, you've got these lovely towers in Istanbul. It'd be a shame if something were to happen to them. Right. I, I expect that's kind of how that That's That's what that I've been went. positing, the, the lever that Erdogan had over Trump. I mean, the, the news reports and the, and the whistleblowers or the leakers inside the White House are suggesting that Erdogan simply raged at Trump and Trump cowered and backed right down. But I'd, I'd bet 50 bucks if I was a betting man that that uh, one of the very first things Erdogan said was, nice little Trump Tower you got here in Istanbul. Be a shame if anything happened to it. Yeah, uh, the question I have for you, though, is I'm wondering, I know you like to get calls from people who don't agree with you. Why don't you call out the Trump-loving rednecks and the Trump-loving faux Christian fundamental uh, evangelicals, et cetera, the Trump lovers in general, to call in and defend their emperor God as he betrays? Uh, They're generally afraid to do it. You know, if, if somebody calls and says, "I want to go in the air and disagree with Tom," they go to the front of the line, literally. I mean, I, you know, I've, been, I've been saying this yeah. for years, but they're they're just afraid to do it. And we've been reaching out to right wingers who have historically come on this program to defend Donald Trump and debate me on various issues. You know, sometimes it's just a just a straight, clean debate about economics or something like that. One of the things that this show is known for is having those people on, so that I can role model for people how to deal with crazy Uncle Ralph at things. Thanksgiving, or how to deal with the guy who is in the cubicle next to you who's been listening to Rush Limbaugh. And, and they won't come on the program now either. I mean, it's like everybody, everybody on the right is like they've complete, they're circling the wagons, they're tightening down the bubble, they're locking it down, and they don't want any, they don't, they're just not willing to engage. It's amazing. Just one more comment, and I'll sign off. Yeah. Uh, this country is going to pay a terrible price for what is happening. No one is going to ally themselves with the United States in the future, knowing that we betray bravery with treachery, which is what we are doing here, what Trump is doing. I and, think when Trump uh, leaves office, if he leaves office with sufficient disgrace that, and we get some, uh, you know, somebody who is widely respected in the White House again, I think it's possible we can get some of our honor back and some of our respect for us. But I, I, think, I, you're so. I think you're absolutely right that it's been badly, badly, badly damaged. And that was the point Dr. Edmund Grieb was making. Nobody in the world is ever going to trust America again, at least over the short term. They call it the Miracle Molecule CBD, and New Leaf Natural CBD oil is great. It's non-intoxicating, well, all CBD oil, non-intoxicating, which makes it great for people who want the benefits of cannabinoids without the mind-altering effects of medical marijuana or other forms. Uh, CBD is non-toxic and has potent pain-relieving and anti-inflammatory properties. And the brand that I'm using right now is New Leaf Naturals. New Leaf Naturals and New Leaf Naturals, the highest quality CBD oil on the market. It's 100% organic, highly concentrated, contains no additional additives, grown in the USA, and the only ingredient is hemp. So the product remains in its most pure and simple form. Go to newleafnaturals.com. That's newleafnaturals.com and save 30% off and get free shipping in the U.S. when you use the code TOM, spelled T-H-O-M. Go to NULeafNaturals.com for premium cannabinoid wellness. There's really only one place, NULeafNaturals.com. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Proof of Conspiracy, How Trump's International Collusion is Threatening American Democracy by Seth Abramson. This is from the introduction. 
In late 2015, after Donald Trump has formally announced his candidacy for president, a geopolitical conspiracy emerges overseas whose key participants are the leaders of Russia, Israel, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, and Egypt. These six men decide that Trump is the antidote to their ills. For Russia, U.S. sanctions. For Israel, the lack of Arab allies. For Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, and Egypt, perceived threats emanating from Iran. The conspirators commit themselves to doing whatever is necessary to ensure that Donald Trump is elected. Trump's presidential campaign is aware of and benefits from this conspiracy both before and after the 2016 election. On March 19, 2018, British journalist David Hearst, the former chief foreign lead writer, leader writer for The Guardian, publishes the most important report of his career. Hearst, at one time the Moscow bureau chief at The Guardian, is now editor-in-chief of his own publishing venture, a London-based Middle East watchdog called The Middle East Eye. In the spring of 2018, he reports the existence of a years-long continent-spanning conspiracy that will eventually envelop the President of the United States, the Red Sea Conspiracy. This book dominates the, excuse me, denominates the conspiracy Hearst uncovers as the Red Sea Conspiracy for the simple reason that it is hatched on a yacht in the middle of the Red Sea, a seawater inlet of the Indian Ocean bordered by, among other countries, Saudi Arabia and Egypt. One imagines that in his many years as a correspondent and commentator for the Scotsman, the Huffington Post, Al Jazeera, El Arabi, Al Jaid, TRT World, which is Turkish, uh, Masar Al Agan, Egypt, and The Guardian, Hearst never thought he'd stumble on a story as far-reaching in its implications as the Red Sea Conspiracy. But he did, and what he found could change the course of history. This book chronicles the events around the globe that preceded and followed the fall 2015 origin of the conspiracy, with a special focus on how the conspiracy prompted Donald Trump and his aides, allies, and associates to covertly collude with six countries, both before and after the 2016 presidential election. Russia, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, Israel, Bahrain, and Egypt. Events that began on the Red Sea in 2015 now influence President Trump's foreign policy toward all of these countries, toward other countries not involved in the conspiracy, such as Qatar and Iran, and more broadly toward Europe, Asia, and the Middle East. The story of the Red Sea Conspiracy begins with, begins with a man named George Nader. As reported by Hearst in the Middle East Eye, toward the end of 2015, Nader, then an advisor to the Crown Prince of Abu Dhabi, Mohammed bin Zayed Al Nayan, known as MBZ, convened, with his patron's permission, a summit of some of the Middle East's most powerful leaders. Gathered on a boat in the Red Sea in the fall of 2015 were Mohammed bin Salman, known as MBS, Deputy Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, who would shortly become the heir apparent to the throne of the Saudi Kingdom. MZB himself, by 2015 the de facto ruler of the United Arab Emirates. Abdel Fattah el-Sisi, the president of Egypt. Prince Salman bin Hamad, the crown prince of Bahrain. The, and King Abdullah II of Jordan. Nader, the improbable maestro of these rulers' clandestine get-together, intended the plan he posed to the men to include the nation of Libya, but no representative from that nation attended the gathering. Of the leaders aboard the yacht, two, MBS and MBZ, are already close. According to a New Yorker interview with Richard A. Clark, a counterterrorism advisor to Presidents Barack Obama and George W. Bush, 
MBS and MBZ, quote, talk on the phone all day to each other, end quote. The Red Sea meeting, although technically convened by Nader, is a means for MZ, MBZ to advance ambitions that he and MBS have designed together. The two sunny Arab leaders' intention, Hearst records, is to remake the Middle East with the covert assistance of a highly placed American politician. They intend to do this by first renaming and reconstituting the, own, the membership of the six-member Gulf Cooperation Council, the GCC, which in 2015 comprises Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, Kuwait, Oman, and Qatar, while reorienting to its regional ambitions and global alliances. The proposed GCC realignment would evict Kuwait, Oman, and Qatar from the Council and replace these three countries with Egypt, Jordan, and Libya, thereby eliminating the entity's historical association with the Persian Gulf and remaking, remaking it as, instead, an alliance constituting, quote, an elite regional group of six countries which would supplant the GCC and form the nucleus of a coalition of pro-U.S. and pro-Israeli states in the Middle East, end quote. According to two sources briefed on the 2015 Red Sea Summit, quote, Nader said this group of states could become a force in the region that the United States government could depend on to counter the influence of Turkey and Iran, end quote. Prior to 2015, Turkey and Saudi Arabia had intermittently enjoyed strong diplomatic ties. The book Proof of Conspiracy by Seth Abramson. On the line with us right now, though, is our old buddy Alex Lawson, the executive director of Social Security Works, owner, host, producer at We Act Radio in Washington, D.C., socialsecurityworks.org, also a, a frequent fill-in guest for me on, on this program, person that we love and appreciate. A-Law202 is his Twitter handle. Alex, welcome back. Thanks for having me, Tom. So Donald Trump announced a couple days ago, and I don't think this got anywhere near enough publicity, that he was going to save Medicare just in time for Medicare for all to roll out. Uh, what's really going on here? This is nothing except for Donald Trump's plan to privatize Medicare. And you are absolutely correct that with everything else going on, it barely caused a blip. But what Donald Trump is proposing is basically the exact same thing that Paul Ryan had been trying to accomplish for decades, for years and years in the House, uh, in the Congress. It's a real threat. And the difference is obviously that he's going to be doing most of the stuff through executive action um, and not through legislative changes. So it's not as permanent. But, uh, you know, what we know is when you break a program through executive action, it is oftentimes not possible to put it back together. And that's what he's proposing. You know, he dresses it up in some language. He says, he, you know, he's going to bring some, some market pricing into traditional Medicare. Uh, but this is what he's doing. He's privatizing Medicare. He wants to turn our earned benefits over to his criminal friends in the insurance industry. And they're doing this through, this, through these privatized programs 
that uh, when the Bush administration pushed this through, correct me if I'm wrong, I think the year was 2005, uh, Medicare Part C, when they first laid this thing out, that private health insurance companies can offer insurance to people over 65 and the government will backstop them and subsidize them. They called it Medicare Advantage, uh, which is a tragedy because it's not Medicare, it's private health insurance. I got my, my uh, Medicare booklet that had the state of Oregon, all the policies that are available, all the Medicare Advantage policies. And, and they have like, you know, annual deductibles of, you know, 3,000, 5,000, 10,000, 20,000 bucks. I mean, if you get seriously sick and you've got Medicare Advantage, you may be in a whole world of hurt. Whereas if you've got regular Medicare and a, and a good solid Medigap policy to fill in the holes, you're doing good. But they're trying to expand the number of things that can be offered on the front end, the fancy, the sizzle stuff, you know, selling the sizzle rather than the steak, whereas the steak is getting smaller and smaller, the, the Medicare Advantage plans and what they will pay and where, where their exceptions are and how they can cut you off and, and, you know, drill holes into your policy. Do I have that right, Alex? That's exactly right, Tom. Um, it's complicated. It's complicated on purpose. But what you just said is exactly right. What they're always trying to do is allow the private insurers to offer more bells and whistles, but actually to try to deny the care, the actual costly care that people think they're getting because they think that they're on uh, Medicare. But it turns out that Medicare Advantage is actually private insurance. So there are denials. Uh, and what the reports, the uh, Inspector General reports, the IG reports have shown is that it's wrongful denials because we know that's what private insurers do. They actually they take our premiums and deny our care. Uh, and that's what Medicare business model. does is exactly it's the only way they can make money. And what Medicare Advantage does is brings that into traditional Medicare. Now, what this executive order does is even like more nefarious than just, you know, they've been trying to steer people into Medicare Advantage, uh, the whole administration. But what they're talking about now is actually breaking up traditional Medicare. So not just making Medicare Advantage more attractive to people, they are going to do that, but actually breaking up traditional Medicare to make it less How? attractive to people. How specifically? So when they... When they say they're bringing these market pricing uh, and or other terminology like that, what they're talking about is replacing the Medicare fee for service um, with, you know, something that is more like private insurance, which just fundamentally changes and destroys the way that Medicare functions. Uh, and that's the that's what this executive order. So if I if, 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 forgive me, Alex, I, I'm not, you know, as deep in the, in the weeds on this stuff as you are. And you really know what you're talking about. And I really don't. I mean, I, yeah, I have broad understanding. But it sounds to me like what you're saying is that right now, Medicare has a basically a table of, you know, here's what we pay if you have uh, exactly. you know, gallbladder surgery, or here's what we pay if you're going in for, for uh, you know, to have a wart removed or whatever it may be. I, you know, here's what we pay to, to have, you know, blood pressure regulated. And they can afford to pay that because they've got a budget. They know how much money they've got coming in. And this way they get to know how much money they've got going out. And they do the whole actuarial thing. And that's how Medicare stays solvent. And what Trump is 
coming and doing is saying, screw all that stuff. Your payment schedule, we're going to throw it out the window. We're going to make it subject to the whims of the of the monopolies in the health, in the in the hospital industry and the drug industry, and in some of the medical specialties. And uh, Medicare is going to end up having to pay a whole lot more in a whole in a whole bunch of areas, and as a consequence, it's going to get broken. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> As usual, Tom, you are deeper in the weeds than even I uh, and can explain it way better. That's exactly right. What I think people should just picture is, you know, all the times that we've been sold this, you know, the mystical magic of the marketplace, right? Like we have a, a public utility and it's working fine. And then somebody gets paid off in government and all of a sudden they privatize it. And they promise us that it's going to deliver savings because of competition and the magic of the marketplace. Right. And then they're going to pass those savings on to the consumers. And that never happens. Right. And then you discover it's Enron. <laughs> yes. Exactly. What happens is we get less and we pay more. And in the end, oftentimes it goes bust and we get nothing. Yeah. Uh, but some Wall Street bankers end up getting another yacht. Yeah. Uh, and that is what this executive order is aiming at. Now, I want to say this, Tom. We're not actually sure, like many of the things that Donald Trump says, we're not actually sure what authority he has for some of the things he said. And there are legal restrictions on Medicare Advantage. We've worked to ensure that Medicare Advantage has to provide certain things, right? Like, so they can't do all bells and whistle and no cancer care. But the way he was talking about it seemed like he was saying he was going to somehow circumvent that. The way that he blew up, or probably the major hole that he's drilling in the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, is allowing insurance companies to offer junk policies where, you know, 150 bucks a month and you think you've got health insurance, but in fact, it doesn't cover anything more than $3,000 in the hospital in any one year or whatever. So it sounds like what you're saying is that with Medicare Advantage, he wants to introduce junk policies into the Medicare Advantage market too. He wants to introduce junk policies. He wants to basically just let uh, the insurers do whatever they want. And he wants to kneecap Medicare, which is, right, that's the, what sure. they do over and over and oh, over they've been again. trying to do it since, since Ronald Reagan said it was right. socialism, you know, and, and warned us about someday we'll look back and remember when men were free before Medicare, right? John Larson's Social Security 2100 Act is moving in the House. NAFTA 2.0, a big problem with NAFTA 2.0 that I'm hearing from, you know, uh, you know a bunch of people, actually, is that it's, it's a giant sweet kiss on the lips to the drug companies. Tell us about these things. That's right. We got to get all of the pharmaceutical provisions out of NAFTA 2.0. Everyone should be calling their members in the House and demanding that that's the ask. Pharma has no place in uh, NAFTA 2.0. With uh, the Social Security expansion, the 2100, this is the last chance we have for the markup in ways and means. We think we're going to get it, but we need people to be demanding of their members in the House that we, uh, if they're Democrats, that we get a markup of the 2100 Act in the Ways and Means So presumably this is to stabilize Social Security so it'll be solid and solvent at least until the year 2100. And I'm guessing that has to do with lifting the cap? It does make it solvent, what they actuarially call sustainable solvency, into uh, 2100, past 2100. But it also expands benefits. So it changes the COLA, to more accurately reflect the the cost increases faced by seniors, people with disabilities, and it increases benefits across the board. So it's it's a Social Security expansion bill, wildly popular, 
We're just about there at the finish line in the House. We just need that extra push from the people. So call your member of Congress, 202-225-3121, and say, Social Security 2100 Act, please do something with it, right? Exactly, Tom. Great. Alex Lawson, socialsecurityworks.org. Pile of information over there, ALAW202 on Twitter. Alex, thanks again. Thanks, Tom. Jody in Carson City, Nevada. Hey, Jody, what's up? Hi, Tom. Hi, head up. Could you uh, elucidate uh, Lyndon Johnson when he uh, put Medicare in? It was 65 and older. Wasn't it going to be 10 years later? It was going to be 55 years and older, and 10 years later, 45 years and older. And on. That's that's more or less correct. Uh, Robert Ball was the guy who actually wrote most of the Medicare law. And uh, he was a friend of LBJ's. And uh, in his later years, he, he gave a couple of public interviews in which he said that they wrote the Medicare Act in such a way that um, it could be, he didn't say 10 years, he didn't say decade, but, but over a period yeah, yeah. of a few years, you know, allowing for the program to expand enough, you know, every year, you know, if you, you drop it by 10 years, you'd have to expand the number of, of people who work in Medicare in order to accommodate that. That over time, well, it's an awful expensive program. Yeah, but he expected he, ex- to do it once. he and LBJ expected that within a decade or two, Medicare would cover everybody in the United States. That's wow. absolutely what they expected and what they planned. And by the way, it's what the Republicans said was going to happen too. And they, you know, they saw it as that's why Ronald Reagan was out there recording that album for the for the American Medical Association, saying this is the beginning of socialism. Someday men will look back and say when men were free. And uh, wow. yeah, absolutely. Wow. And um, Thank you, Tom. I sure appreciate it, man. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks a lot for the call, Jody. As Trump slaughters or allows Turkey to slaughter using American weapons, our allies, the Kurds. Listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.